Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of April 2021 and this is episode 205. Today's programme is the third and last interview I did with Stephen L. Harris about his research into three US Army units drawn from the New York area. Today's interview looks at his book on the Harlem Hellfighters, which examines the service of the 369th Infantry Regiment in the Great War. This book is published by Potomac Books. Stephen spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Phoenix, Arizona. Stephen, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, Tom. Uh, I am a journalist and a freelance uh, writer. Uh, I started out uh, on a newspaper in Connecticut, a weekly newspaper, and, and worked my way up. And eventually I got one of the great jobs uh, in corporate America. I was the editor of the General Electric Corporate Magazine, and I was able to uh, cover the Jack Welch Revolution. As you may know, he was one of the most uh, revered or hated CEOs in the country back in the 1980s and early 90s. But uh, he was quite a dynamic figure, and I was thrilled uh, to be uh, the editor of the magazine and to cover his revolution. Uh, But then I left to write a book on the Olympics, and I wrote a book for the U.S. Olympic team called 100 Golden Olympians, which honored in 1996 the 100 greatest American Olympic champions uh, as part of the 100th anniversary of the modern Olympic Games. And when I finished that, I found all these letters that my great uncle had written from the Western Front. Uh, and I started reading them and I said, by golly, there's a story here. So I researched uh, his regiment, which was the old 7th Regiment out of New York City, and wrote uh, my first book of my National Guard trilogy of New York City. So why do you think your research into the 369th uh, Infantry Regiment is so important? Because a lot of people did not know what the African-Americans did during World War I. And in fact, very few people knew up, up until World War I what African-Americans had, had, had done to defend the United States. And it goes all the way back to even to the Revolutionary War where there were uh, actual uh, black units. Uh, obviously in the Civil War, there were, there were black units. One of them became very famous in the movie Glory with Denzel Washington. Uh, that uh, was one of the first uh, African-Americans to get into combat in the Civil War. Then the African-Americans were out in the American West, and they became famous as buffalo soldiers. The Indians looked at their curly hair and called them buffalo soldiers because of their uh, curly hair. and in uh, the Spanish-American War, nobody knows this. Uh, very few people know this. You know, Teddy Roosevelt became president, became president because he led the charge up San Juan or Kettle Hill. And uh, everybody remembers that charge. But who was the first unit up there? It was the 10th Cavalry, a black regiment. And the commanding, uh, the captain in that uh, 10th Cavalry was General John J. Pershing. And uh, so it was a black regiment, uh, Roosevelt's Rough Riders up the hill. Uh, and so in World War One, I felt it was time to tell the story of what this, uh, the Harlem Hellfighters did. So I researched and wrote the story. And I want to tell you how I got about writing the story. Uh, the 7th Regiment was posted to 
uh, South Carolina for basic training. And they were down there with the 27th Division, but the Harlem Hellfighters were not allowed to go because they were a black unit. And so they had no division they were assigned to. And then finally, the War Department said, you know, let's send them down to South Carolina. So they went down to South Carolina. And what a dumb thing that was, because there was a race riot in East St. Louis. Over 100 blacks were killed in 1917. Why would you send a black regiment to the Deep South where lynching was all over the place? It was stupid. And nobody, everybody figured there was going to be a race riot in, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And it became almost certain there was. And so they decided they had to get the Harlem Hellfighters or the Black Regiment out of there in a hurry and send them to France with no training. And so they got the regiment to march out of Camp Wadsworth. And as they shouldered their rifles and had their, their packs on their backs, they straightened up and they started to march out of Camp Wadsworth. The soldiers of the 7th Regiment, the white boys, formed a gauntlet that these guys had to march through. And as they marched through that gauntlet, the white boys sang to them George M. Cohen's great song, Over There. And I said, by golly, I got to write about the Harlem soldiers. And so I did. Right, well, let's go to the, their origins. Now, in June 1913, the New York Army National Guard created the 15th New York Infantry Regiment, which later became redesignated as the 369th Infantry Regiment in 1918. So I will suggest we just call them the 369th because it's easier and we could easily get confused. So can you tell us... Um, right. Can you tell us about... Now, did this unit um, in when it was created in 1913, did it, it recruit um, black and Afro, Afro um, sorry, did it recruit black and um, African-American soldiers into its ranks? No, what happened was in 1913, when the uh, governor of the state of New York signed uh, the, the bill to create the 369th, uh, it never got formed. Either the bill was lost, forgotten, or neglected. And so there was no, even though the regiment was there on paper, there was no regiment at all. And it wasn't until 1916 when Pancho Villa invaded the United States and the governor, well, the president sent all the troops to uh, the Texas border. New York City was without a National Guard unit. And so a lawyer uh, noticed this, a white guy, and he decided that there was a law. He saw the law. And so he decided to form the 369th, an all-black regiment. And he got permission, and he set up a, a recruiting uh, store in Harlem and waited for everybody to come in and sign up. But hardly anybody did. And it, was, it looked like the regiment was not going to be born at all. And then in stepped one of the great heroes of the war, as far as I'm concerned, one of my all-time favorite guys, Jim Reese Europe a black guy, a composer, the king of ragtime music. And he was one of the first guys to perform a huge concert in Carnegie Hall in 1912. He walked in and said he wanted to be a soldier. And when Bill Hayward, he was the guy that started the regiment, found out who he was, he said, Jim, I'll let you be a soldier, but first I want you to start a regimental band. And so he did. And to this day, I still think it's one of the greatest regimental bands of all time. And I'll tell you more about it in a minute. He put together a band of just incredible musicians. So, so they marched through the streets of New York. And when the black residents saw this band and heard this music, they followed it right to the recruiting station and signed up. And in no time, Bill Hayward had a full-time regiment and they were ready to go. 
and Jim Reese Europe wanted to be a soldier, and so he made him a machine gun officer, but he still had to keep his eye on this wonderful, wonderful regimental band. Was the unit um, short of men in 1917 when the war broke out, and did it, did it experience a large influx of new volunteers? It actually, uh, with the band going, it became a fully regiment. It didn't need any additional men. And a lot of the soldiers that they went, they went out and recruited uh, uh, residents in upstate New York. And one of the residents they recruited in upstate New York was a little red cap named Henry, Henry Johnson. He was like five feet, four inches tall and weighed hardly 100 pounds. He was not what you would call your soldier, uh, soldier material. But we can talk about Henry Johnson in a moment. Now, but they had a full regiment and uh, they were ready to go. Now, was the uh, three six ninth? Was it a segregated unit? Could white men join this unit, or was it as, uh, very much div divided on colour? Well, that's an interesting question. And what it is, it was perhaps the first integrated regiment in U.S. history. Now, not in the not in the enlisted men rank. Uh, they were all black, but in the uh, officers' ranks. There were black officers and white officers, and that was, as far as I know, that had never happened in, in U.S. history. And there was there was a number of black officers. Uh, a lot of them were uh, well-known citizens from the uh, streets of Harlem, lawyers, uh, businessmen who joined up. And, of course, as I mentioned, Jim Reese Europe, who became a first lieutenant. Now, um, what, what part of New York did um, the soldiers who joined the unit come from? Did they come from across the uh, state, or was it predominantly drawn from New York City? They basically came from the borough of Harlem, although a number of them did come from other areas of New York uh, City, including Brooklyn. But they, they did come from uh, other suburbs or cities like Albany, New York, uh, to fill up the ranks. But Harlem was the heart and soul of the regiment. Now, I, I suppose just to give us a, a bit of background, how were um, African-Americans treated in New York around the time of the First World War? What was their sort of legal status and what, what sort of rights and political rights did they have? Uh, they had all the rights that, that white people had, although they were still not, uh, had the freedom, I guess you might say, of, uh, of the white people. But they, they were respected. And that was one of the, the problems that the uh, Southerners felt. They said they didn't want these uppity blacks from New York coming down here where our docile blacks, you know, say, yes, sir, no, sir. They, they said they're going to be a pain uh, down here in South Carolina. But these, these blacks were um, pretty much on their own. And um, uh, one of the things that uh, I want to quote uh, about this is from... Jim Reese Europe, when he decided to uh, enlist in the 369th, he says to his best friends, Noble Cecil and uh, Hubie Blake, and Hubie Blake is later known as one of the great jazz pianists of all time. He said, I have been in New York for 16 years, and there has never been such an organization of Negro men that will bring together all classes of men for a common good. And our race will never amount to anything politically or economically in New York or anywhere else unless there are strong organizations of men who stand for something in the community. New York cannot afford to lose this great chance for such a strong, powerful institution for the development of the Negro manhood of Harlem. And that's the reason why he went into uh, enlist in the 369th. What was the motivation for, for other African-American soldiers to enlist in the 369th uh, in, uh, 
on the outbreak of war? They felt that it was their duty. Uh, you know, they believed in America and they believed it was their duty to defend their country. And so another that was one of the reasons why a lot of the African-Americans enlisted, although, uh, you know, a lot of them said, uh, you know, why would I defend a country that, you know, won't give me the right basic rights that everybody else has? And so a lot of them didn't. But those who did really believed in the American dream and that they wanted to defend their country in that dream. Right. Well, let's get on to what the unit got up to in Europe. Now, the unit is sent to, to France in 1917, and in 1918, it's placed under French command and serving as part of the French 16th Division. Why was this unit placed under French command when Pershing was so insistent that American forces should serve under, serve under American command? Well, I think that, that, that Pershing really didn't know what to do with the black uh, regiment. You know, it, it wasn't part of any division. It was just a, one, one regiment. And so when they sailed for France in the fall of 1917, they thought they were going to go fight. But they landed in the port of, uh, uh, they landed in Brest, and then they uh, wound up in uh, the port of St. Nazaire, and they were stevedores. They were workers. They didn't have anything to do with fighting. They helped build the port to bring in the American ships that were going to bring all the troops over. And, and uh, Hamilton Fish Jr., one of the white officers, Captain Fish, whose uh, cousin was the first Rough Rider killed in the Spanish-American War, and whose grandfather was the Secretary of State on the Ulysses S. Grant presidential uh, administration, called it this pick-and-shovel work. And they were all upset that they would, that's all they were going to do. They weren't going to fight. And... Uh, Bill Hayward, who is a, a lawyer, and Fish himself, they tried so hard to get this regiment into a combat zone. And while they were working, this is a very important part, and while they were working, they would come up, the soldiers would come up all sweaty and dirty at the end of the day, and it would form a big circle, 2,000 men. And into that circle would step Jim Reese Europe and his regimental band. And they would play to these soldiers at the end of the night. And French citizens hearing this came from all around the Port of St. Nazaire to hear this band play. And then along comes a guy from the uh, YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, and they're opening up a rest area for soldiers in, in the French Alps. And they're looking for citizen soldiers to play, or, you know, citizen, to play uh, musicians. And they heard this band. And they said, we want this band to open. And so they said, okay, this band is now going to go to the Swiss Alps and open this rest area. And the band left St. Nazaire by train. And it stopped along the way, and it would get out of the train and play in town squares all across France. And that's how jazz got introduced to France in a big way, because of this band. And wherever it went, citizens came out to listen to them. And they just loved these bands. And then the bands got to uh, the Swiss Alps. And they played in front of white soldiers. And the first day they played, the curtain opened and there was black guys on the stage and the white soldiers didn't know what to do. And then they started to play over there. The, black, the white soldiers went crazy and stood up and, and shook the American flag. And it was a great way to, rece to, uh, to receive these black soldiers into the heart of America's white soldiers. And then about a month later, uh, the uh, 369th got its orders and it was off to the French Fourth Army because Pershing still didn't know what to do. And as the commanding officer of the 369th said, we were the orphan regiment and Pershing left us on the stoop of France. And they were welcomed into the, uh, into the fourth the German Fourth Army 
And there, the Germans, the French treated them so well and really appreciated the hard fighting that this regiment then did. So how did French civilians and French, the French military treat um, black American soldiers of the 369th? And was it significantly different from the sort of treatment they got at home? The uh, French loved, apparently loved the black soldiers. They treated them with the best respect. Uh, they welcomed them in open arms wherever they went. You know, as I mentioned, the band was such a, a uh, icebreaker, if you will. Uh, the French soldiers did not mind fighting side by side with them. And the French soldiers had been fighting side by side with Moroccans, you know, that, that came and fought with them uh, as well. So they were used to fighting with black soldiers. And so there was no animosity at all. I'm sure there was some, uh, as there always will be. But if, if, if the uh, Harlem Hill fighters had fought with white American soldiers, it would have been a different thing, I think. I don't know, but I think it might be. So what actions did the 369th um, see under the command of the French in 1918? Well, like uh, the, the, the uh, Irish Americans, they fought in the Champagne uh, area. That was their first engagement. And uh, it, it was you know, pretty bloody. That was when the Germans started their uh, attack, uh, their last offensive of the war. Uh, then they, then they uh, moved into the Meuse-Argonne and fought there throughout the war and uh, very bloody fighting. And it was there that uh, uh, they picked up their famous Nome de Guerre Hellfighters. And when the war was over, the French government gave the Harlem Hellfighters the honor of leading the Allies into, uh, into Germany. And they marched to the Rhine River. And whether this is true or not, uh, Bill Hayward, who was the commanding officer of the 369th, he was on horseback and he rode his horse up to the edge of the Rhine River, bent over, dipped his hand into, into the water and drank from it and said, we're here, boys, we're here. And uh, it's kind of, whether it's true or not, I don't know. I put it in my book, but I made sure that uh, it's, just, it's just one of those great stories. So who called them the, the Harlem Hellfighters and how were they regarded by um, their white American contemporaries? Well, that's a good question. A lot of people say that it was the French that gave them the, uh, the nickname Hellfighters, and I think it was. And then other people said, well, it was uh, the Germans that gave them. And uh, so it's, it's, it's still, to me, it's not clear. I do want to mention uh, one soldier, and I mentioned him earlier on, Henry Johnson. And this, this will tell you why, why they're called the Hellfighter. Henry Johnson, as I said, was a little guy, you know, 5'4", not quite 100 pounds, uh, from Albany. And uh, he was put out on with another guy from Trenton, New Jersey, a guy named Needham Roberts. And they were put out in no man's land as a listening post to make sure the Germans, this is in trench warfare, the Germans wouldn't come attacking. And they had to warn their uh, companies, their, their guys back about 200, 300 yards behind them. And so they were out there, and all of a sudden, a platoon of Germans attacked them, about 30 guys. And they shot both these guys. They shot them two or three times. Needham Roberts was, was bleeding. He fell down. He couldn't fight. And uh, Henry Johnson had a three-shot rifle. That was it. Three shots, and he was done. He used the stock of his rifle to slug the Germans, and that didn't work. <clears throat> so he pulled out a bolo knife. That's what they carried. And he started slashing away, and he started killing them left and right. And they started screaming and yelling, and they ran. And he chased these German soldiers, and he yelled, come back and fight with Henry Johnson, you cowards. And just the next day, 
they went out and the they, uh, officers went out and checked the battle scene. And there were Germans dead. There was blood all over the place. And Henry Johnson had been wounded like 21 times. And he fought him off. And the next day, a journalist came and just to be uh, just a fluke that he was there. And he interviewed all these soldiers about Henry Johnson. And he wrote an article for the Saturday Evening Post about Henry Johnson's battle. And Henry Johnson's name was carried in newspapers all across the United States. And he was one of the first American heroes of the war. And it wasn't until uh, about four or five years ago that the state government, the federal government in the United States decided to honor Henry Johnson with a Congressional Medal of Honor, one of only two black uh, soldiers to receive that award in World War I. Now, what was the legacy uh, for soldiers of the 369th of their service in France? What impact did it make on their future lives? Well, I think what happened was, that's a good question, they uh, went back to their normal way of uh, living. Um, it, it didn't get much better, I don't think, but it didn't get much worse. One of the sad things was that Jim Reese Europe came back to New York and the welcoming parade was extraordinary for the 369th. And Jim Europe decided to take his band on a barnstorming tour of the United States. And uh, they went all over the, uh, they went far west to St. Louis. They went to Chicago and they came back to, to uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And while they were playing on stage, his drummer got up, ran into the wings of the uh, stage and stabbed Jim Reese in New York. In the, in Jim Reese Europe in the neck and killed him. And he was 39 years old and without a doubt. He would have been one of the greatest uh, known jazz composers in the history of the United States, but he was cut short. And that's one of the sad things about uh, what happened to the 369th. But it is still today a regiment, and it is still an active duty, and it has gone overseas and fought in World War II, and it's been uh, overseas, and it's still an active duty, and they're still up there in Harlem, and they're still wel welcome throughout New York. And if I should also say the United States. Is the current 369th very much aware of their First World War heritage? And is that a common feature amongst many of the New York um, infantry units that fought in the war? I believe it is, yes. The thing that's interesting, though, know, is like all uh, regiments or all military forces today in the United States, they're all integrated. So you will see, you know, you know, white soldiers in the 369th now, uh, you know, Latinos, uh, Asians. It's just kind of neat to see it, see it that way. Uh, but uh, it was, as I said earlier on, probably the first integrated unit, at least in the officers' corps, uh, in the United States. Finally, Stephen, where can people learn more about your book and also your work? Well, uh, I do have a website. People can go to my website. It's uh, www.stephenlharris.com, all lowercase, and Stephen is spelt with a P-A. And uh, my book can be bought at uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and uh, the, the University of Nebraska Press. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman. 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>